Hovering over the skies of a post-Christian society, we have spotted a man with a donut in one hand oh. and rosary beads in another. Child, I'm about to whoop Satan's behind. He is boldly proclaiming truth and reason like no rigid Catholic ever has before. The David L. Gray Show begins now. Heaven. Jesus loves you and is there for you. Welcome in to the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. And we begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, my Jesus, forgive us of our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those most near thy mercy. Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. St. Dominic Guzman, pray for us. Venerable Father Augustus Tolson, pray for us. So what are we talking about today? It's Ash Wednesday, the start of our 46-day journey. Let's not count on Sundays, right? <laughs> six Sundays. We just say 40 days, but 46. Why cheat ourselves? Our 46-day journey with Jesus on the way to Calvary. Going to Mass Ash Wednesdays, um, getting the sacramental ashes placed on our head is always a great start. External signs are important. But what about the in interior conversion in this Lent? How and how intensifying our, our prayer life? How how essential is that? So I'm going to talk about that, give a couple of brief reflections on prayer, which is necessary for salvation. And then about the 20 minute mark, David DeShield, who compiled the wonderful collection of essays found in a new book called Ain't Ever Ancient, Ever New. Why Younger Generations Are Embracing Traditional Catholicism, published by Tan Books. He'll be on to talk about his new book and the larger question of why the older traditions and why and how has the newer liturgical rites and disciplines, how have they failed us? So Cecil's here, Cecil the Anderson, the producer of the show here. She's in the house. How's it going, Cecil? It's going all right. I've got my ashes on. I actually had a really, really good cross this morning. <laughs> I say I had because I think I smeared it at some point. I was so proud. It was like the first time that I've gotten like perfect little cross. That's uh, good. I was not done dirty while I was, you know, like going through. Um, and so, but then I think I smeared it accidentally. But uh, yeah, I'm doing well. So it was a nice thick cross, huh? It was. It was. <laughs> yeah, good. That's been going good. I've been I've been looking at on the social medias and people priests have been doing really good this year. A lot of nice thick and dark crosses going around. Maybe maybe Pope Francis sent on a memo. <laughs> Like, like, don't let's be get stingy. on top of this, guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe maybe the, all the jokes on social media finally got to them, and they're like, we're going to make our goal this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crosses matter. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> What's some of your lensing? Do you have any lensing goals this, this, yeah. this season? Yeah, so it's funny you were talking about, you know, prayer and the necessity for salvation is, is, you know, having prayer. And so that's something that I've been trying to prioritize. And in doing that, I'm – trying to simultaneously take out some things in my life that are definitely distracting me from prayer and also making sure, making the commitment to really do my designated prayer time and not let anything else come before that. Um, yeah. And so uh, one of those things is YouTube is a very dangerous place because it's really easy to get, you think you're like just there for two minutes and then 30 minutes later you're on a documentary about seals <laughs> and you just don't know how that happened. So I am trying to avoid that. So I've eliminated YouTube. 
yeah. outside of work purposes. Um, and so uh, that's a big one. I've also decided to, uh, I'm not going to eat out unless it's like a church kind of function, like a young adult function or something like that. And if I do, I'm going to try to only go to um, local owned businesses and not any fast food joints or anything like that. Yeah, that's about the same as mine. And um, definitely cutting back the fast food, except on Fridays, maybe. The fish fillet? Some, yeah, yeah, something from Popeye's <laughs> or something like that. And uh, basically spending, I, I spend money unnecessarily. Yes. And I, I need yes, to do better. Thing, so yeah. that's that's what I'm really paying attention to um, this Lent. So I was happy to hear uh, we had a raffle winner. That was exciting. Yes, that was right. Clarissa Gonzalez from San Antonio won the Mercedes-Benz. Very, very exciting. My Dave actually got to speak with her the other day. Super sweet, young fa- um, mother, uh, new oh. wife, you know, like wow. young family. So pretty yeah. pretty nice early on in the marriage, you know, to get a Mercedes-Benz. But they're uh, very happy. I don't know if you were listening or not, mm, uh, yeah, it was, David. So but yeah, live, she was yeah. able to call in yeah. because she was listening, which I think is a first for the GRN. So that was oh. really exciting. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I remember her saying that she her like her hands were shaking or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I was like that's sweet. really yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it was awesome. The Dave, uh, Dave Palmer, you guys over at the Back to the Father have anything yes. going on for the whole Lent? Is there like gonna be a theme or just they'll go Friday by Friday? I think we're gonna go Friday by Friday. Uh, we've been kind of going on a theme recently of talking about different philosophers and philosophies, and then have it, how Saint Thomas would have responded to them based on his teachings. I always am saying like, I would have, how much money I would pay for St. Thomas to respond to some of these in person, you know, like just sit there to a debate between like Nietzsche or something like that and uh, Aquinas. But so this week we're going to talk about the existentialists. So particularly oh, okay. like Kierkegaard, uh, Sartre, uh, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce all these other names properly, so I'm going to stop there. But <laughs> those are some of the big ones. <laughs> and uh, existentialism, so uh, which I feel like is a word that like gets thrown out a lot in comedy almost. You know, like you're having an mm-hmm. existential crisis. So it'll be interesting to kind of actually get into what the root of all that is and where it yeah. came from. Yeah, I was talking about that on one of my podcasts recently about – Whenever you hear some political people talk about existential crisis, it's usually not an existential crisis. It's usually <laughs> something something going on with their agenda that's just not working out. Oh. So, it's, uh, yeah. I, whenever I hear existential crisis, I just picture like someone just laying on a patch of carpet, <laughs> just like the, contemplating life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And honestly, for I mean, you know, like. Uh, you know, I think I've done well academically in scholarship. You know, I have a couple of master's degrees, and but it wasn't until a few years ago where existential wasn't even it was even in my vocabulary. It just didn't mm. I didn't even know that word really. But then it just became really trendy. Everything yeah, was did. like existential. Like and I think once you learn it, you you just want to say it all the time. You're like existential. <laughs> I, I think I think yeah I think I think it's contagious. Yeah. It I, I wanted to ask you. Because you're, you're a convert. Yes. What, what did Lent look like for you when you were still a Protestant? Oh, good question. So when I was really young, we didn't practice any faith at all, and I um, any Christian faith at all. And I didn't uh, – I knew what Lent was because we had a friend who was Catholic. And I just – all I remember, like my earliest memory of Lent is this friend being at a sleepover, and she had given up popcorn for Lent, and there was popcorn <laughs> right in front of her. And I remember her, like, just, like, lifting it up and smelling it. And, like, oh, just – and I just remember thinking, like, why aren't you just eating the popcorn? Like, yeah. I didn't get it at all. Um, so, so in my opinion, like Lent was like, okay, you give up food you really love and then torture yourself for like. <laughs> um, but, but as we, you know, have uh, started growing Christian faith, and we're going to a lot of Protestant churches. 
especially the last few ones that we went to, they were pretty liturgical. So Lent was discussed. There just weren't any formal practices. I had a lot of friends mm. who actually would put in practices. Like they would, oh, I'm going to abstain from, you know, uh, I'm going to not go on social media or I'm going to just like really little things. But it wasn't like, oh, I'm doing this for Lent. But it's kind of like, oh, yeah, just leading up into Easter. And I'm like, that's Lent. But OK. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was one funny. of those things where the, the period of time was important. It just wasn't formally, you know, put together and um, practiced. Did it sound like too Catholic for people? Is that why it wasn't? I think so. Okay. I think so. In the church that we were at a Presbyterian church, okay, um, okay. the same denomination that Scott Hahn uh, was from, actually. And so it was very, very liturgical. The way that our services were set up was very much like the Mass. And we had seasons of Advent and things like that. We, I think Advent was celebrated a lot more than we actually practiced oh, okay. Lent. But yeah, I think it was too Catholic. It's like, oh, <laughs> we can't go too far. Yeah, when I when I converted, um, yeah, I was I was very unchurched. Um, I didn't even after I became Catholic, I found out about Lent and liturgical seasons. I remember thinking, oh, I think I heard about this thing before, but it was like a it was like all all new to me. So oh, that's exciting yeah. though. It's a whole new experience. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like going from like the the Julian calendar to the Gregorian, right? Um, yeah. Gregory is like, oh, that's a whole new calendar right here. You're like, oh, yeah, the new oh. year comes before the new year. <laughs> yeah. And it has colors. It has and colors. you see my background, sister. Everything yes, is purple I now. Saw that. It used to be green. So yeah, I'm really into the coordinating, you know, uh, getting um, particular places in a house, you know, yeah. um, liturgically. Ready. Um, coordinated. That's yeah. awesome. That's really cool because that's that's something I feel like the way that the church has it set up is really beautiful because it also sometimes often kind of corresponds with the changing of seasons and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I think it's all very beautiful how it works together. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Clarissa Gonzalez. She's watching on the live stream. She says, thanks for the shout out. <laughs> Big smile. I'm still so grateful and think it's hard to believe we'll be getting a new car. God is good. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, she hasn't even picked up the car yet. What's going on? <laughs> I believe the car is still being shipped because of, you know, everything the world has been going through. We haven't. Oh, man. Um, but I, she'll be getting it soon. She, but, yeah, she's going to come pick it up, and it's going to be very exciting. Okay. Okay. That's good. Awesome. That's Thanks, awesome. Clarissa. Well, thank you, uh, Clarissa. It's awesome that you're listening. Thanks, Sissa. Of course. So this is the David O. Gray Show. Voicing Truth and Reason on Guadalupe Radio Network, which is ready for soul. So make sure you guys download the Guadalupe Radio Net app on your smartphone. Use it to listen to all of our programming all day long. Starting in the morning with the Catholic Drive Time Show with Joe McClain, Adrian Francesca, Rudolfo Carlos, starting at 6 a.m. Also, subscribe to our Guadalupe Radio Network on all social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. And that's where you can watch Back to the Father on Fridays, Friday afternoons. And this is David O'Grace Show, Voicing Truth and Reason on Guadalupe Radio Network, which is radio for your soul. So prayer is necessary for salvation. And that is essentially why the Catholic Church calls the liturgy of the Mass not only a prayer, but the highest prayer of the church. Because it is there that we truly commune with Christ Jesus, who is the door to our salvation. So Without prayer, we cannot be saved. So we talk a lot during the liturgical seasons about giving up things, about, about doing more with our, the gifts that God has given us. But I find that both of those ideas are really just mere fruits of what it means to be dependent on God, to be truly poor in spirit. 
people who are poorest in spirit do not have anything on their own, right? Of their own, right? they they are they are detached from things. They're not attached to things of the world, because they are dependent on God for everything. People who have given themselves over to God no longer rely on their own human efforts. They are dependent on God. And the, the pathway, I find that the pathway to dependence on God, again, is prayer, right? That's the spirit of prayer, just speaking with God and letting God know God who knows all things, but confessing and, um, and either audibly or, or mentally confessing that we need you, God. We depend on you, that I can do nothing without you. And so just doing that in repetition and making that habitual, making that our prayer life, expressing this dependence, um, interiorly begins to work itself out exteriorly, right? Our, our life begins to look a different way. It looks like we're dependent on God, right? And that's infectious for those around us. Like, oh, that person is relying on themselves. They have something, someone greater than themselves who they put their trust in. So I want to read you three things that I think will get us in a Lenten mood of developing a, a deeper dependency on God through prayer, which is, again, necessary for our salvation. All right. So the first one comes from a book. I think I, um, I read out this book before. It's my favorite book on Dominican spirituality. It's called Dominican Spirituality, and it's by William Heinbush. He's a Dominican, of course. It's a really good book. It's a book that I always go to when I get, want to get refreshed in Dominican spirituality. And so he says this. This is a book. Um, uh, Father, he what he did was well, he's he he's really referencing a much older book of, from someone who knew Saint Dominic personally and wrote. Um, about his life and what type of prayer life he had and some of the really it's, it's one of the best sources that we have on saint dominic himself so he says this about saint dominic that saint dominic founded a new kind of order one that pursued an intense life of prayer and yet embraced a general apostolic activity he personally demonstrated that it is possible to be a contemplative of the highest type and also a zealous apostle. But these two lives can be united only when the apostle gives primacy to contemplation. It must be Christian contemplative pondering the mysteries of redemption, Christ's desire to save all souls, his death on the cross, for redemption of sinners, the Father's love in sending Christ to us. That type of prayer becomes apostolic. The contemplative seeks the salvation of his neighbor because, like the early Christians, when he sees his neighbor, he sees God. And then he goes on to talk about <clears throat> what it does look like in St. Dominic's life. He says, St. Dominic prayed in that way. Jordan of Saxony writes, he shared the daytime with his neighbor, but the night he dedicated to God. He spent so much of his night in prayer that he hardly needed a bed. In fact, the friars testified that he never had his own bed when he slept. When he slept, he slept in a chair on the floor 
leaning against the altar, or dozed on a table. At night, he prayed as long as his body could endure. When he slept, when sleep overpowered him, he rested his head like the patriarch Jacob upon a stone. After a short rest, Jordan notes, he would arise, his spirit renewed in fervent prayer. He was the first and the foremost a, cont a contemplative, and his children must be contemplative. So this was the prayer life of St. Dominic. So what, what uh, Father is saying here is that, um, so being a contemplative is really just having a, an unceasing prayer life, a, a prayer, uh, a, a true prayer life that you're praying unceasingly. Like prayer is your life, right? There's not a time to pray. Rather, prayer is your life. You're a walking prayer. Okay. And so heretofore, before the Dominicans came around, you had people who made, you had a, they had a, a prayer life, right? Prayer was their life. And then you had those who were actives. Okay. And so what the Dominicans brought into the conversation, into the religious life, was that a marrying of the two. But for St. Dominic, you could not be active unless prayer was your life. So the contemplative life was really the wellspring from which your life prays. So this is something we can think about during the Lent. During Lent, I'm asking ourselves the question, what type of, how intense is my prayer life? Is it that, do I have a time to pray or is praying my life? Okay, so those are two different things. There's there there are those of us who pray. We set apart times to do that. Uh, maybe in the morning, during the day, maybe at three o'clock at nighttime. Fine. But where we want to get to is that point where we don't just pray at particular times. Rather, our life is a prayer. Okay, so. It'd be wonderful if we did reach the goal like St. Dominic, where we just fall asleep, right, <laughs> while we pray. But that, that's a great goal to have, but it takes time to get there. But it begins, begins by, by through contemplation, right, mentally, verbally, and just figuring out how, how, what does my life look like as a prayer, especially those of us who have day jobs. Like, what, is it, what does that look like in figuring it, figuring it out? So this is another one I want to read to you. This is from a book, and bring then I bring on David DeShiel um, to talk about his book on the traditional why why uh, why people have been becoming attracted to the traditional Lamb Mass. But this book, Prayer: The Key to Salvation, is one of those books when I converted um, that really changed my life. The other one, and these were like tan books too, and the other one was a book called um, Hell. Right, I think it's hell, the reasonableness of hell or something like that. Um, so this this book and prayer to keep salvation just just really changed my life. So there's a, a section I want to read out of here so we can briefly reflect on that as well. And this says Saint John Chrysostom says, Everyone, he says, who does not pray and who does not wish to keep in continual uh, commun communion with God is dead. So everyone who says who does not pray and who does not wish to keep continually communion with God, that is to be a contemplative, 
is dead. He has lost his life. Nay, he has even lost his reason. He must be insane. For he does not understand what a great honor it is to pray. And he cannot be convinced of the important truth that not to pray is to bring death upon a soul. As it is impossible for him to lead a virtuous life without the aid of prayer. Now, St. John Chrysostom here, now he's being quite, I mean, these are hard words, right? I mean, he's being quite intense and intentional with his words, but we can't say he's being hyperbolic either. Right? I think what he's speaking is the truth. And I think we've seen that in the lives of others who do not have a prayer life. That we, we can say that there are areas of their life, um, if we know them well, that we can say is dead. There's no life there. And the life we're speaking about is the life, Jesus Christ, right? So, and this is the connection between prayer and communion with God, right? So when we spend time with Jesus Christ, when we spend time with him, we commune with him. We have a contemplative life where our life becomes a prayer. And what I mean by our life, it means every aspect of our life, not just one section, one, not just our finances or our family or a job, but our life, our full life becomes a prayer. We can see Christ in all of our life, right? And that's different from people have like narrow prayer lives, like, oh, I'm praying really hard for my family, but when it comes to my job, mm, not there. So we can see, okay, that aspect of my life is is dead, right? There's no life there. Um, So no, St. John Chrysostom, he's not being hyperbolic here. He's being, what he's saying is true. And so this is some things I want to really leave with you as we begin our journey here on Ash Wednesday, um, or this Lenten journey this year, that what does it look like for you to develop <clears throat> a life that is a prayer? What does it look like for you for prayer to be a verb? What does that look like? And um, perhaps in the next 40, 46 days, we could come closer to where St. Dominic was. And that's all I know about that for now. This is the David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on the Guadalupe Radio Network. was ready for so David Dash Shield, the Shield, who compiled a wonderful collection of essays found in Ever Ancient, Ever New, Why Younger Generations Are Bracing in Traditional Catholicism, but beyond taught tradition or an orthodoxy with us. Stay tuned. I'll bet you know by now that Amazon Smile is a great way to support your favorite charity. And supporting the Guadalupe Radio Network while you shop is easy. Step one, just start off at smile.amazon.com. Step two, choose La Promesa Foundation as your charity. La Promesa Foundation is the parent company of Guadalupe Radio Network. And step three, enjoy your shopping. Amazon will donate a portion of your purchase to the La Promesa Foundation, and it doesn't cost you any extra. La Promesa Foundation and Guadalupe Radio Network, thank you. 
Are you a young adult looking for the right path through the challenges and changes in your life? Do you wish to do God's will but don't know how? Join Young Catholic Professionals April 29th through May 1st for their 2022 conference, Thy Will Be Done on Earth as It Is in Heaven. A weekend of inspirational speakers, enriching small group discussions, and the sacraments together with 600 plus witnesses for Christ from across the nation. Visit ycpconference.org to register. Registration closes April 7th. Do you know the connection between the theological virtues and listening to Catholic Radio on the Guadalupe Radio Network? The Catechism says that the theological virtues are gifts from God, infused into our souls, which make us capable of acting as His children and of meriting eternal life. The gift of faith helps us believe all that God has revealed to us through His Holy Church. These truths are presented on Catholic Radio every day. Truth resonates in our heart and creates a desire to know God and spend eternal with him in heaven. The theological virtue of hope helps us put our trust in God and his promises for our ultimate happiness. Charity is the theological virtue by which we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. This is the purpose of Catholic Radio, to help us grow in our love of God and neighbor by earnestly seeking him and aligning our beliefs with what he has taught us. This is Len Oswald, president of the Guadalupe Radio Network with this week's GRN Family Minute. Welcome back in to David L. Gray Show, voicing truth and reason on Guadalupe Radio Network, which is ready for you. So David DeShiel is a freelance author and editor. He has written at One Pizza Five, Crisis Magazine, Catholic Answers, The Imaginative Conservative. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and two children. He has a master's degree in theology from Franciscan University and is the editor of the anthology Ever Ancient, Ever New, Why Younger Generations Are Embracing the Traditional Catholicism. And now he's on the David O'Gray Show. Welcome in, David. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. How so is Ash Wednesday? Um, I guess we could start off with just a little talk about your, your Lenten journey. I see some ashes on your forehead. If you're watching the video, I see a little smudge there. Did it start off like that or or was it originally thicker and longer? Uh oh actually I think this one started off yeah. Yeah, it started <laughs> off like that. <laughs> Surprisingly, I haven't done much movement. It's been <laughs> on the computer. <laughs> that's true so how's your uh what's your what's your um, linton goals this year this year i want to i want to focus a lot on self-denial i think i'm learning that that really helps me grow in holiness especially getting myself free of distractions just no matter one environment you know if it's with people it's with things i find myself very distracted especially during prayer and so i think this time i'm going to print out a couple you know sacred images and put some some prayers on the back, just so I have it in my pocket, pull it out whenever I look. So that's yeah. what I really want to focus on. And then just short, you know, disciplined things like, you know, don't, don't bring your phone with you if you're going to be eating with your family or something like that, oh, yeah. or, yeah, yeah. you know, don't snack between meals, just quick things that I can do to kind of dial back a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I read a book not too long ago. I can't remember the name of it, but it was teaching about how to develop good habits and the book had pointed out that the way to develop habits is to have like just really small goals. Right. Um, and if we accomplish, 
what's there. If you accomplish small things, you'll end up accomplishing big things. For example, if your goal was to read this wonderful book, ever ancient, ever new. Uh, <laughs> so if your goal is to read it, um, a, a good way to start is make yourself a really small goal of reading a paragraph. And what you'll find out is that that paragraph turns in a couple of paragraphs. And so start off with really small goals. If your goal is to get a, you know, get back better in shape, it's not the goal isn't go to the, to the gym It's to put on your, your gym clothes, right? <laughs> so small stuff like that. So yeah, that's, yeah, I like, so I like that. Those, those small goals of, of, um, that you have there that that's, I think that's, I think you're going to be really successful. Yeah. This LinkedIn. Yeah, that's the hope. I find that to be true for myself, too. That's why, I mean, I even did five minutes of exercise a day because I know that if I do 15, I might not get it in. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's great. So I do want to talk about your book, uh, wonderful book here, Ever Ancient, Ever New, Why Younger uh, Generations Are Embracing Traditional Catholicism. You can buy the book at Directly From Tan or anywhere. I saw it on Amazon, has some good reviews there. What were What were some of your... Um, so I want to ask you, of course, what motivated you to write this book and get to some particulars of some of the things that you wrote. But I want to hear what, what, what has been your what has been some of the responses to the book and has it has it have they surprised you? Sure. Um, the response has been pretty positive. To, to be honest, I've talked to a lot of people who are interested in the book and, you know, personally selling copies of the book, that sort of thing. Um, there aren't many people who have come to me who have then read it, but the people who have have really appreciated the the different perspectives. Just hearing from people, you know, in the kind of millennial space who want to speak about their experience with tradition with the Latin Mass, people are happy that that's out there. It's getting out there in some way, and that yeah. people are speaking about it who can actually, you know, put words to things in a way that doesn't sound, you know belligerent so that it can speak to a variety of different audiences. I think that's what I'm hearing the most. Yeah. And I thought some of the essays in, in the book um, were just like that, because I think, I think it, 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 it puts to rest some preconceived notions that people may have about people who go to, who worship at the traditional Latin mass. Um, and I think that some of those fears were perhaps, um, um, had gas poured on them with the yep. motu proprio of Pope Francis, um, you know, the suppressing of it as if those people that go to traditional at mass, they're the problem and they're dividing the church and stuff like that. But really, these are really some really nice essays. They're calm, but like yours, for example, just really made the case. Like this is where I was. Um, and then this is what I found. And and I'm happy, and this is is made all the difference in my life. So I think all together, there's um, I guess is seven essays, mm -hmm. um, including people like um, Timothy Gordon and his wife, yourself, and a, a few others. And so, but I was really impressed just by by your journey because we had a few things in common. We both spent some time at Franciscan. Well, you graduated from oh. there. I just I just started my my graduate journey there, and so I wanted to talk to you about that to give our, our listeners here on Guadalupe Radio Network just a sense of your journey, because I think it just really encapsulates what this book 
is about. And we're speaking with David DeShill. He is a writer. You can find him at several different places like 1 Peter 5. And he's written a wonderful book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, Why Younger Generations Are Embracing Traditional Catholicism. If you have a question, of course, you can always chime in on the live streams. Or if you want to call in, the phone number here is 877-757-9424. That's 877 877- Nine four two four, and um, so tell us a little bit about your journey, David. Sure. So I grew up in a Catholic family. Um, my mother was the one who took us to church. My father is um, kind of accepting of the faith, but he himself is probably somewhere close to agnostic. Um, and so we started going to church. I prayed. I'm the type of temperament who, you know, wants routine, wants consistency. So something like religion is very, you know, natural to me, but I didn't really know much about it. I went to religion class every Sunday, but we didn't get much besides just the basic gospel message, reading the New Testament, didn't get much Old Testament, didn't really get other aspects of the faith. So I knew a little bit, but I had been involved in enough youth ministry to want to learn a little bit more about it. So when she was in colleges, I was between going for music, for percussion, and going for some sort of theology. At first, I wanted to be a youth minister. By the time I went out, I wanted to be a liturgist. So I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville in Ohio. And I remember shortly after starting there, I picked up a book called, or shortly before, I picked up a book called Aquinas' Shorter Summa, which was Aquinas's unfinished condensed version of his summa theologiae Hmm. and i had no experience with aquinas no experience with philosophy but i just started reading it It took me half an hour to read one single paragraph (laughs) but but i was interested enough i could tell that there was something there there there's something some kind of that i had never been introduced to so as i went through my studies at franciscan i started to learn more about the faith got more into it you know understood the reasons for what i had already believed And then I started to dabble in more, you can call it charismatic forms of worship and praise. So I went to praise and worship nights. I went to what's called a festival of praise at Franciscan, Hmm. where um, there's Eucharistic adoration and a band playing praise and worship music. I tried some of that out. I also was on the more, you call it the more traditional side of things, on the liturgy committee at Franciscan University, helping out with the different apostolates, like extraordinary ministers, Holy Communion, ushers lectures, that kind of thing, helping with the summer conferences. So I kind of dabbled in all of it. And I found myself gravitating toward more, you know, quiet contemplative experiences of the liturgy with, um, you know, music that went more toward chant, something that looked more like the Latin mass, but I didn't know what it was until that last year when a friend invited me to go, I think I started with the low mass and I didn't really know what was going on. I had a minor in Latin, so I knew a good amount of the words, but I didn't okay. really know what was going on. But I could tell it was important because everyone was facing the same way. Mm-hmm. There was this meditative silence. And I could tell that everyone was directed toward God in some way. Yeah. And so that kind of piqued my interest. And then from there, I learned more and more about the Latin Mass, started to go more and more often. And then by the time I was in Nashville, Tennessee with my wife, we started going to a parish there. And meeting people after mass, they did a a first Sunday brunch potluck kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I started to get the sense that these people were just normal and that they had this kind of vibrancy that other Catholics didn't really have. So I was attracted to the mass itself. 
you know, in Latin, I was attracted to the people around it. And then after spending, or at the start, I should say, of a couple years in Pittsburgh as a liturgist, I really got the theological reasons behind it from reading people like Dr. Peter Krasnevsky and listening to people like Timothy Gordon um, to really back up, okay, you know, this is something that I like, but mm-hmm. it's also something that just makes a lot of sense. And it's a great way to worship God. Yeah. And um, we're speaking with David DeShiel. He is the author and compiler. He has an essay in here, but he's also the editor, compiler of Ever Ancients, Ever New, Why Young Generations Are Embracing Traditional Catholicism. You can buy it anywhere. You buy your Catholic books online, bookstores, um, TAN, the website, T-A-N, their website, or Amazon, whatever. Why you ever get your books? Really good. Short book. Goes fast. Um, but really some compelling essays in here. And David, you're, um, but your wife she had experience with the uh, FSSP, correct? That's right. So I was finishing up. I was getting a um, master's degree in theology. So I was in Steubenville, and she was in Phoenix, Arizona, um, doing doing some work with the homeless shelter for pregnant uh, women. Okay. And she okay. just started going there to the FSSP parish as kind of somewhere to ground her because she was okay. – it's one of those situations where you live with the moms. You know, you get all their drama. You don't really get a break from work except for that one day a week where you get to go to another location. And that okay. was kind of her stronghold in that time. Yeah. So um, heretofore, she was also just Norvis Ordo all her life? Yeah, she was She was probably more charismatic than me okay. as far as that stuff goes. She would go to praise and worship regularly. She started to move away from that toward the end. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys, you, guys met, you guys met at Franciscan. We did. Mm-hmm. So and do we you still, together. Really? Okay. Do you still recommend uh, Franciscan uh, Steubenville in Ohio as a place to find a good wife, a good spouse? <laughs> sure. I think it's great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, there, I, I would say, I would say that it had been getting more secular when I was there in the tail end and, you know, 2018. Yeah. But that's just because of the culture in general. It's not really anything Franciscan was doing wrong at the time. Mm. So I don't know. It started to look a little bit more like other colleges, but I don't think that was the fault of Franciscan. I think it's a great place to find a wife. <laughs> Work for me. Because <laughs> you're from Baltimore, right? Right. Yeah. I'm from Baltimore, and she's from McEwen, about an hour west of Nashville. So oh, okay, we were not. Okay. You had a lot of choices of universities to go to on the East Coast. Why did you choose to come all the way to Ohio, Southeast Ohio at that? Right. I mean, I wasn't really locked into a particular location. I chose based on major, so I wanted to. I was oh, okay. in the drum line and the marching band. I I either wanted to do something like that, or I wanted to do something like youth ministry. So I just looked at colleges that had either both or one of the two options. And then when I toured Franciscan, it was just kind of night and day. As far as you know, you go to some colleges and the students they'll give you a good tour, but you can tell they're just kind of doing it because it's their job. But at Franciscan. The people who gave me the tour, they were very much into it. You could tell they really wanted to be there. And it was going to be an experience that really formed me well, not just gave me a decent education. Mm -hmm. And get your wife, and now you guys have That's true, although I didn't know. Yeah, you didn't know. (laughs) I actually was a priest when I started. (laughs) Really? Awesome. Um, Yeah, that's good. I think everyone should discern in or out of that as, as especially as a man that's so I'm glad you you did that the right way and so now you're a father of two children you guys are going traditional Latin mass 
Um, but your father wasn't, um, you know, he's quite different from you, at least, at least faith wise. You know, we always, we always hear a lot about people who, and we always hear, you know, the father plays such an important role in, in the, the faith, uh, the formation of the faith of their children. But in your household, it's primarily your mother that uh, was really grounded in the faith. How's that really affected you as a father, um, knowing who your father is and the role he played in your life? How's that affected you being a father of two young children? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, at home growing up, I mean, it didn't it didn't create a hugely negative experience, but what happened was more of a vacuum. So we just didn't really do anything related to the faith in the home. So I think now I'm much more keen on that. I'm not doing the best job, of course. You know, I'm always working on that. But I'm very keen on, you know, daily things we can do to practice the faith in the home. Um, right now, that looks like, daily mass thankfully it's just a walk for us um but yeah i'm i'm very in tune to that because i didn't get that as a child i really want ways to kind of incorporate the liturgical life of the church in daily life you know how do we celebrate feasts you know what what can we do around lent you know to really get it together as a family that kind of thing yeah yeah i think that's how a lot of men are um that's definitely how it was you know I i was blessed to have um you know my biological father who's in my life and also my mother got married, uh, you know, my stepfather, but you know, with your fathers, you take, you know, you take the good, you know, you tell, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll emulate that. And then what you perceive is bad. Okay. I'm going to try to do the opposite. Right. And then a lot of men, I think we discover later on what, you know, what we hate is at some point in time we realize, Oh man, I'm just like my father, like in, in this sort of way. Right. right. <laughs> and so, but yeah, I'm really excited for you to be on that journey of um of being a type of father who in a way that I know you wish you you know would have had in some ways in some aspects you know at least you know concerning the faith so that's that's really exciting do you think you're what do you have you have boys girls I have a two-year-old daughter and then one coming around Easter oh so you have one in the oven yes that's right oh wow (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't quite that's want to a... put that on the book, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, man. So, and um, and we're speaking with um David DeShiel. He is the he's, he has an essay in his book, but also he's a compiler, the editor, a book ever ancient, ever new, is why younger generations are embracing traditional Catholicism. If you have a particular question for David feel free to hit us up on one of the live streams that we're rolling. Also, 877-757-9424. That's 877-757-9424. We're going to get some of the, to, in the meat of the arguments to some of this book in, in, in the book now. So, so David, why? <laughs> the answer to the question, uh, why are younger generations embracing traditional Catholicism? Sure. So, I think it's because they're they're looking for something kind of stable and attractive, something true, good, and beautiful, and and just because it kind of it makes sense as a form of worship. So it's and that's how it happened chronologically for me. You know, I was first attracted to the Latin Mass. I saw that there, and I think the Latin Mass is a good kind of example for traditional Catholicism. But you can think of things like what Catholics have done for centuries. So, for example, that can be you know frequent fasting, penances, it could be praying the rosary, that sort of thing. 
but focusing on the Latin mass that really attracted me and it attracts so many other people I talk to because yeah. you can tell that something serious and important is going on. You go in, everyone's facing the same direction. What direction is that? It's kind of liturgical East facing the Lord, facing the altar. All of the actions are oriented toward worship. All of the prayers, they speak of sacrifice. They speak of worship because the mass is that representation of the sacrifice of Calvary that we're supposed to participate in. And so you hear that spoken about, you see it in that minute movement from the servers. You see the people, you know, kneeling, sitting, all focused. But then it's also attractive in the sense that, you know, the people know that they don't have to understand every single thing that's going on because the point is to worship God. The priest is speaking to God. We don't necessarily have to understand it. It's good that we do, but that kind of takes the pressure off. And then secondly, I think that aspect of, you know, rationality, reasonableness, I kind of got into it a little earlier just now, but it's that it really makes sense with what the mass is supposed to be, what it actually is. The priest, when he confects the Eucharist, he's bringing Jesus Christ back. He's making him present, representing, representing that sacrifice on the altar on Calvary. And mm-hmm. so it makes sense that the prayers would have language to fit that. It makes sense that there would be a certain solemnity. There would be bells, incense, that kind of thing. And so as a form of worship, it just kind of makes sense with who we are and what we're there to do as well. Yeah. Were you attracted to the fact that it's it's static? Uh, When we go to a lot of people, their experience with the the new order, right? The Norris order. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go, um, it's going to be something just a little bit different, something a little off from your parish, or perhaps even your own parish. Every Sunday, just a little bit something different, something a little bit off. Um, talk a little bit about that, about why that wasn't a problem for you initially growing up, but then how it became something that was unattractive to you. Right. So growing up, I I had no idea what the Latin Mass was until I was, I don't know, 21, about that age. I, I hadn't heard of it at all. I hadn't heard of much about the church before Vatican II, really. Um, and so I I was okay with it. I mean, I went to a, a Novus Ordo parish as a kid, but it was a little bit hokey as far as, you know, some of the music. And, um, you know, the priest would do the thing sometimes where he's around the altar, he has the extraordinary ministers, and they're all holding hands in a big ring during the Our Father. So some strange things were happening. But overall, you know, it was it was something I was comfortable with. And I had always heard it's funny that you mentioned the kind of stability, because that is something that really attracted me to Latin Mass and something that I hear from other people as well. But I would always hear even with the Novus Ordo, that no matter where you go, no matter what country you're in, the mass is the mass and, you know, you'll get that same thing. And I did feel a little bit at home, but then I started to realize as I learned more about it, especially as I started as a liturgist for a couple of years in Pittsburgh, I read the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which is the, the liturgical document that priests are bound to. It tells them how to celebrate the Novus Ordo, how to celebrate the mass of Paul VI. And I kept reading phrases that suggested one thing pretty strongly. So the priest should use Eucharistic prayer one or Eucharistic prayer four on Sunday. But if he has, you know, a good reason, if he chooses whatever the language is, he can also use the other ones. And it kept kind of presenting something as the, the ideal 
only to make it just another option. Mm -hmm. And so going to Latin mass, there's a high contrast because you have one Eucharistic prayer. It's Eucharistic prayer one, the Novus Order, the Roman canon with Linus, Cletus, Sixtus, Clement. You know, you hear that litany. You have the prayers at the foot of the altar. They're always the same. Of course, the readings change and that sort of thing. But even those are more static. It's just a one-year cycle, repeats every year. And so there's that attractiveness just in having something familiar. But also, as I grew to learn more and understand more, I realized that it's very helpful to have, you know, the same prayers, similar readings every year. Because that leaves less up to the option of the priest, even if the priest is a good, holy man. The fact is that some things, you know, some prayers, some language, etc., do, you know, give God better worship than others. And case in point to that is when the Lord gives Moses very specific instructions in later on in the book of Exodus for building the tabernacle. He says, make the altar this long and this wide and make it out of this material. And Jesus says similar things about worship in the New Testament. So you can tell that God wants something specific. Yeah. So it just makes sense to have something consistent. Mm-hmm. What, what always impressed me the most about uh, the traditional Latin Mass and or the Norvis Ordo when it's, it's done as it was designed to be, you know, at Orientum, is that we, we talked a little bit about, about the role of the father, right? And the role of the father, how important that is in, in forming his children spiritually. And when a priest, we see him praying like a mm-hmm. like a father should. Um, when he's when he's facing the um, facing Calvary, I think it it, it it teaches us. When we look at Father praying that way as children, it says it teaches us that oh, that's I should be praying like Father, meaning I should be praying to in the direction of Calvary, and not only that. If, if I'm, I'm praying that way, if, and if my life is a prayer, right, then my life is oriented towards Calvary. And so Father, Father, the Father teaches us how to pray, how to live our life. He's an example to us. And it's quite a contrast when we see our Father facing us um, as if we're the source of, as if we're something important, right? And, and it's kind of right. odd. And I always wonder... Yeah. If um you know I did my first experience with the older liturgies wasn't you know the traditional Latin mass. I always wondered who I would be if I you know went to a FSSP first, but I happened to go to a Byzantine. Right, that was my first experience outside, and that would you know once I experienced Eastern worship, you know the Byzantine, and then the Melkite later on, it was like oh you know I could not find a more beautiful woman. Um, but um, but what was when you when you think of that, um. The when you think of like the greatest deficiency, right? What what is so the Novus Order is is a you know we're not here bashing. It's a valid you know you know mm-hmm. perhaps one day we could find some saints who that was there's that was their primary mode of worship. But um, as far as deficiencies go, what do you think is the most harmful thing about the new order order um, liturgy? Right. So this is kind of a tricky question for me because I, I want to focus on, I want to focus on things that are inherent in the Novus Order. Cause you can talk mm-hmm. about, um, you know, multiplying the ministers, kind of outsourcing the role of the priest. You can talk about facing the people. You can talk about, you know, less bells, less incense, but all those things are things that the priest could change. So he could kind of approximate the Latin mass. So I think what I focus on 
specifically are two things. One is the options that the priest has, and two is the readings, because those things are fixed. You know, the priest can't have a new schedule of readings, you know, a new lectionary, and he can't he can't not give himself options that the liturgical books give. So I would say the um, the options that the priest has, it's probably the um, you know the the most negative aspect about it, just for the reasons I said, because the Lord has specific ways that He'd like to be worshipped, and now that's not to say that you know you should only have one right in the Catholic Church, but it makes sense that your right has you know some some kind of consistency to it, um, and then in addition, the specific prayers, you know, some of which it would take a long conversation to get into, but like some of which were cut, you know, some of which were. Mm-hmm change to have more kind of peaceful language those have been in the church for centuries and centuries and centuries and it's not a great thing when you all of a sudden have all these different options that weren't there before because what you're doing is you're tweaking the holy spirit's inspiration you know how he's worked in speaking to the apostles and jesus speaking to the apostles instituting the different rites through them and then over time slowly developing and then each of the rights at a certain time they sort of crystallize and then all changes after that are very kind of incremental but when you have such a a drastic change where you get all these different options that weren't there before it's kind of turning back the clock in a way that could you know could be seen as ignoring some action of the holy spirit yeah 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 and i think it's dangerous well i think for i think it's hard enough for a priest to get the the heaven anyway. And before that, we're speaking with David DeShiel. Um, he is the, he's the editor of a new book, ancient, ever ancient, ever new, why younger Catholics are embracing traditional Catholicism. Go over to Amazon, Tam Books, anywhere where you like getting your books, check out the reviews. And if you like them, which I'm sure you will, check out the book and, um, and write a review yourself. Let us know if you like it. I sure did. And I've um, got Colin um, chiming in, he says, my draw uh, was the beauty of the mass itself, just the reverence. Mm-hmm. He said, I got so tired of balloon banners and butterflies. And Colin, I didn't even know about balloons. I was doing a ma- episode of Mass Nightmares the other day, and um, <laughs> I saw balloons. And I, I just, I, that, that was just amazing to me. I didn't know helium was the thing. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, but that, that's the thing I want to point to. I think it, I say I think it's hard enough, David, for for priests to get to heaven. I think it, it's hard enough, but um, I think it's even more dangerous the liberty that the new order right gives them to modify things. And I think it, it's a near occasion. I think to sin, to it, 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 the. I mean, it's, it's so dangerous having the option to do whatever you want um, in a lot of ways and say whatever you want. And, and by giving those options, I think you can put people's soul in jeopardy and it can be harmful mm-hmm. to the faithful. And so I just think it's a very precarious position to put the priest in, have so many options, so many, you know, right at the mass, he could give an introduction of the mass, you know, he uses his own words. It's right. so many, I mean, it's, it's so dangerous, don't you think? I think so, yeah. And actually, and I'm I'm really not not trying to be, you know, facetious or anything. I really do think that the Novus Ordo puts a lot of pressure on the priest. Yeah. Um, 
there's kind of, there's sort of this pressure to perform. I mean, I, I don't mean to put it that far in that direction, but there is a sense in which, you know, the, the kind of call and response and especially when it's facing the people, the priest feels like he always has to keep the people's attention because they're always facing him. And then with the options too, right. It, it can be tempting to kind of do whatever you like. That's actually part of the reason why I stopped being a liturgist. Um, <laughs> because it was pretty tempting, hmm. you know, to just kind of, you know, steer a priest in this direction or that direction. Yeah. And I thought oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And we see that come to life. You look at churches like St. Um, Sabina in, in Chicago with Father Flager. I mean, um, you know, his he has women basically, you know, as his liturgical committee. And there, there's so many churches that just, yeah, priests just follow whatever the committee of liturgists, uh, liturgists um, say. So, but we got about, we got about, uh, about 60 seconds here. I want to give you the final word here. Just kind of, just make a final case for tradition and, you know, plug your book. Sure, sure. Yeah, so the book's ever ancient, ever new, why younger generations are returning to embracing traditional Catholicism by Tan. So, well, we're we're embracing it, of course, because we're looking for reverence, we're looking for stability, we're looking for something that's true, good, and beautiful, and makes sense. And that's why a lot of people come, because the Latin Mass is attractive, and because it makes sense. However, you know, I get that a lot of people, you know, might have trouble with it at first. So I just encourage you to go try out the Latin mass, find someone who knows what's going on and remember that you don't have to know what's going on at first and really at all, but because that's not what the mass is about, but it's good to know. And so try it for a good period of time. You know, a lot of people say a few months and don't be alarmed that you don't know some things. You'll find that most of the people you talk to are good, kind hearted people. And that's why, that's why we put this book out because we're trying to show that the people who come to the Latin mass who love tradition are just trying to find the Lord Jesus. You know, they're not those handful of, you know, intense, not socially well-adjusted set of contests who you may have <laughs> run into, you may have heard about. Yeah. So I'd say get the book and read through it. Some chapters are going to speak more to people, more to other people than some. Awesome. Thank thanks, David. And thanks for tuning in. I'll be back same time next week, same place. Look forward to conversing with you again. In between time, meantime, visit me at davidlgray.info. Until then, until next time, remember, Jesus loves you and is there for you. And live your life like salvation matters. May the Lord's blessings and graces and favors fall upon you. Thank you. <laughs>